morning, good morning. I wonder if you could find a seat. That'll be wonderful. And good morning to all those online, all those watching from different parts. We have some that sign on from different countries and friends of us and friends of some of you. And so welcome to all of you. I really mean that. Even, even Daryl, who watches from Canada. My one friend. Good morning. Isn't it wonderful to worship the Lord? It really, really is. You know, the scripture says, worship the Lord and the beauty of his holiness. And this, the more I grow in the Lord, the more I get revelation from his word, the more he speaks to me, the more, just the more, the more I realize I don't know. You know, I, I think it's true in life too, you know? It's just there's so much to him, there's so much about him, and uh, when I started to preach, I was so sure of things, and so sure of the Lord, and so sure, I am still sure of that, but so sure of just doctrines, and, and the more you grow in the Lord, the more you realize, Lord, it's just, I trust you. I trust you, I love you, I rely upon you, you know? You begin less, to be less assured of yourself and more assured of Him. It really is true. <laughs> it really is true. Oh, wonderful. Can we pray? Lord, we love You. We love to worship You and honor You and glorify You and magnify You. Not because You need us, Lord, but because we need to see You for who You are. Lord, we bless your name. We bless your name. And I thank you for the authority that your son has given to his bride, to his church. And may we ever use that authority to bring you glory and honor. In Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I'm going to continue this morning from last week, the king's kingdom and the king's bride, but I just want to make first, I think I have an announcement. Yes, fasting. <laughs> How exciting. We're going to be fasting um, February, 20, uh, February 1st to February 21st, and uh, we'll give you more details. Not everyone, you know, most people are probably not going to fast the whole time. You're welcome to. Please be medically wise and so forth. But I'm going to be speaking here on Wednesday. And it's not going to be necessarily a service like this. It's just, I'm, we just, I'm just going to teach. And just it's going to be a teaching on fasting from Scripture. Probably going to do two sessions uh, this Wednesday, two sessions next Wednesday, just to get through some of it. So um, there's a, the fasting is a powerful tool. And I've got to stop because then we'll start doing that now. But it's a very powerful tool very powerful. And so I'll be doing that here on Wednesday. I don't know. I think it's seven o'clock. Somebody said what time? It's on the website and that's what I'll look at on Wednesday. So it's on the website. That's, that's how it goes in the office. So, you know, you know, we come to the Lord, something the Lord just put in my heart just this week. And again, this morning, we come to the Lord before we understand 
you know, it, obviously we have to have, be at the age of understanding, but the most wonderful and powerful parts of Scripture are actually the very, sorry, this cable, are the very simple parts, the basic things. Jesus loves you. You know, he died, he rose. The, the edges, the doctrines around the edge, you know, where does God come from? Well, no one knows. He just always was, always is. Everything comes from him. Things that we cannot fully, those things, the more complicated, you will find that those are not the things that change the world. It's a profound revelation of the basic, basic truth. And we come before we understand. You know, in the natural, everybody eats before they understand fully how that food turns into, to some measure, blood and bones and teeth and hair. But they still eat. Yeah? And for people to say, I cannot come to God until I understand, is the same as to say, you know, because most of us don't, unless you go and study medicine, we don't fully even understand what I just said physically, how that happens. Maybe some understanding. It's like saying, I cannot come to the Lord until I understand. It's like saying, I won't eat until I have a medical degree. Until I understand. You know, it's actually fear and pride. Fear that I'll be tricked or that I'll look silly or pride that, you know, I must remain in control. It doesn't work like that. Hello? Yeah. You know, so we started last week with that wonderful encouraging note. <laughs> Jesus actually said it. Unless you become like children, no. He said unless you become like little children, little children. You know, I found little children forgive very fast. It's amazing. They whack their friend, whack. Friend whacks them back. Five seconds later, they're playing. That doesn't do, that doesn't happen with adults. You know, children, dad, is it like this? Yes, son, it's like this. Okay. They just do it. Unless you become like little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You will grow in understanding. You will grow in knowledge. You will grow in the knowledge of God. You will grow in all those things. But we come to him before we understand. It's like that always. Mm -hmm. All right. Paris Reedhead, great man of God, gave us a definition of the difference between humanism and Christianity. And I started with this last week. As you talk about the king's kingdom and the king's bride, you know, humanism says that the end of all being is the happiness of man. Christianity says that the end of all being is the glory of God. And humanism has so penetrated even what Christianity is and the design and the intention of God that most people take the provisions of Christ. We don't, it's not with a bad heart. It's often what it's taught to us. We take the provisions of Christ, whatever they may be, rescue from this world, heaven itself, healings, all the wonderful things that God has put in his kingdom for his people, for his children. But it's like, you know, when the gospel is the center of everything, man becomes the center. It's all about the good news. It's about me. It's about us, about what Jesus did for us. And that is, that is good news and it's wonderful, but it's, there's something beyond the us and that's the king and his kingdom. And you know, we can very, it just so infiltrates our culture. 
that it's unless it suits me. Is this true? And I said this last week and I say again, not to mock, not to offend, but it, it creeps in everywhere. You know, we say, well, I go to there because I like the worship. I go there because I like the teaching. I go there because of this or I go there because they have the services that match my time schedule. Or, you know, that's great to have those things. But in reality, for thousands of years, it wasn't like that. It was, what do you want? Where must I go? What must I do? That's it. I'll adjust, Lord. That is what it is to be his children and to be his bride. And he's still a king. He's still a king. And so there's just something of humanism that has come in. And the church in this hour, and I say this with love in my heart, cannot afford to remain in like an identity crisis. The church has to come to the truth. And it has to come to the real truth of who God is. And the holiness and the majesty and the awe and the power of God. Yes, on and through his people but we have to come back to the truth and it will cost you your precious culture. Whatever that culture may be, the more the culture of the world goes out and Christ comes in, the more the world will see love, joy, power, peace. It does, it costs. But you'll find, I think it was Charles Spurgeon, I showed it to Steve, he said, Wherever you find sin, you will find sorrow. Wherever you find holiness, you find happiness. And it, it's just true. You know, but allow God to bring you there. Allow the Lord to bring his people there. It's not, by, it's not like this. It's through a relationship. It's through a relationship. Leonard Ravenhill said, There's no place on God's earth more exciting than the church of the living God when God is brooding there. And there is no place on God's earth more boring when he isn't there. Yeah, it's too many amens. <laughs> for, and we'll just say it was for the first one. So, you know, the Wesley revival is just so powerful, the awakening of the Lord. You know that one time Charles Finney, ah, Charles Finney, Charles Wesley, I preached, I think it was, sorry, got water. I think it was 600 sermons in a row, days or something like that. And out of those 600 sermons, he preached six times within a church walls. Most of it was outdoors. You know, just ancient paths, ancient truths. Charles Finney preached 28 days in a row once to the same group of people, and he never gave a single altar call. He was the guy who made the altar calls more. That's like he was partly started that. And... Um, but he actually didn't preach on the love and the kindness, which is real. He, pro he preached on the wrath of God for those who are outside of Christ for 28 days. And then the town came streaming forward, say, mercy, we need the Lord, we need the Lord, we need the Lord. And the revival broke it. <laughs> so there's just these things that, to embrace this, this upward call, the church needs her identity again, the bride, to be who God and who her husband, the groom Christ, said that we are. Yet, the love of God knows no bounds. The grace of the Lord. I studied the doctrine of grace for, I don't know, four or five years. It changed my world, changed my life. 
that it, the grace of God is so scandalous that a righteous God will justify the wicked and put his own righteousness on them even while you do stuff, you're still righteous. That is so scandalous, that it, but it's still true. It's amazing. But it's like this gentleman, Dudley Daniels, he used to say, if I was hanging on the end of a cliff and somebody came and freed me from that cliff, and then we said, oh, we've been rescued, right? Salvation, we've been rescued. And I'm so free that I'm free enough to make the decision and they go right back and they hang on that cliff. That's how some people think. We're so free in the Lord, I'm gonna go hang on the cliff again. It's like, why? So, anyway, King's Kingdom, King's Bride. Yeah, I'm teaching a bit on the church and the Bride of Christ, but we have to have just a basic perspective on the kingdom, which I touched on last week briefly. The kingdom is not the church. You know, when we get saved, the Bible says in Colossians, we are conveyed into the kingdom of the Son of His love. We're not conveyed into the church. We're conveyed into the kingdom of God, the kingdom. The kingdom will never pass away. The kingdom is forever. The church has a point A and a point B. It will end so that the kingdom will come in its full entirety. So, but some basic things on the kingdom. The kingdom was Christ's focus. It's what he, the bookends of everything he did. He started preaching the kingdom. He ended preaching the kingdom. The kingdom is our given priority. That means the king's domain, the kingdom, the dominion, the authority, the rule of the king. The kingdom is our given priority. Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So he will give the truths and the intentions of his heart and the desires of his heart to his church, to his ecclesia, to his governing body on the earth to bring his kingdom about in very practical, normal ways, in business, in life, in social circles, in regions, in cities, in nations. You know, the Bible says disciple the nations, yeah? We make a disciple people. Obviously, we disciple people but it says disciple nations. It's hard to disciple nations unless you take a city and then another one and then another one where the kingdom of God is actually seen, not the supernatural. I mean his principles, his values, his heart, not by force but by love, not by beating people, by fear or by trying to force doctrine on people. No, to demonstrate the power and the love of God and let the hearts and the desires come back to the Lord. Yeah, happened before. It's gonna happen again. The kingdom is our given priority. The kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom is realized through fellowship with the Holy Spirit, and this kingdom has keys. I will give you the keys to the kingdom, and he has given these keys to the church. So what are we, in a sense, doing with them? Keys lock and unlock things. Both times, Jesus only talked about the church twice. One about the capital C, the universal church, Matthew 16. One about a local body like this, Matthew 18. Both times he throws out the statement, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Both times he said it is the both twice he spoke about the church. And that is better translated Whatever has already been bound in heaven, I give you the keys to lock, to break down here on the earth all the works of the enemy. 
For this, 1 John 3, 8. For this reason, he was made manifest, Jesus, that you might destroy the works of the devil, destroy the works of the enemy. So everywhere where there's a, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. That's what Jesus said, Matthew 16. So everywhere you're going down a street, you're going into a business, you're going into a family, it's like over there, the kingdom of darkness is at work while the kingdom of light needs to go in there and smash open those gates and bring truth and life and freedom because he will build his church and he will give those keys to you to unlock things that he has unlocked. And the most holy place, the curtain has been opened, the Holy Spirit is out and busy and active and we learn to partner with him and bring release and freedom and power to his glory to see those situations and families and things turned around, and he has given those keys to you. (laughs) Hello? So, the king's bride. What is the church? Why do we come here? What is the nature of the church? And (laughs) why do we come here every week? Church is not a place you can actually go to. You are the church. We know some of these things. But we've covered some. The church is, well, the church, the ecclesia, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the household of God, the building, the temple, the family of God, the flock, the children of light, a holy nation, the pillar and foundation of truth, the army of God, the house of prayer. These are what the scripture says the church is. And so sometimes when you want to come back to God's intention for something, you go look at what he said about it, yeah? If you want to get to know the Lord, you start by, what is the Bible? What does the scripture say who he is? And some of those things will become experiential. It's the same for the church. So we touched this last week, the church, the word ecclesia or ecclesia, however you want to say it. It was actually, like I said, (laughs) the Romans took the democracy that the Greeks had, invented in a sense, but they hadn't fully put it into practice. And the Romans appointed a senate, which isn't like our senate, it's more like a cabinet. And the senate were hand-picked people by the governor, by the emperor, by Caesar, hand-picked people who came to live there with him, to know him personally. And he gave them the authority. They were the governing authority on the, on, throughout his whole kingdom. They implemented things. They knew his heart, his desires, his will, his everything that he wants to do, the purpose. And they took that and they put it into place, put it into being. And they were called, in their language, ecclesia, the church. Jesus used that phrase when he said, I will build my church. They said, ah, we know what that is. It was a governing body of authority. I'm not talking about now government like Washington, D.C., yes, with the Romans, but with the church, it's the spiritual government of God, the authority, the rule upon the earth. And I said this last week, I'm going to say it again, Jesus never created a religion. We have a religion, that's great. But in his mind and in his heart in Matthew 16, it was family, I will adopt you, I will pay for you, I will ransom you, you will, be, you will come back to your father, it's family, and I will give you authority. You know like the Senate in Rome, you know like that group of people has the authority throughout the kingdom of Rome? Yes, 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 like that, I will build my church like that. <laughs> That's what he said. I will give you keys of the kingdom. 
and you will implement. That's just what the word means. <laughs> Help us, Lord. The body of Christ, we are the body, now the bride. I'm only going to touch on one this week, the bride of Christ. We're not going to get through all of those titles or different facets of the church because we'll be here for, uh, you know, maybe touch on two or three more the next one or two weeks. But I want to just speak very plainly about the bride. What does it mean when we are the bride of Christ? Some men are like, eh, uh, me in a wedding dress, not so sure. But what does it mean? Because there are truths about the bride that bring out the reality of his intention for the church. So, go to Ephesians 5 if you can. If you have a physical Bible, I encourage you to turn there. It's, it's a good idea to know where it is. But you know that Jesus himself called himself the bridegroom. He was asked a question about fasting by the Pharisees and his response was, how can the friends of the bridegroom fast when the groom is here? So he called himself the groom. So in his mind, he is the bridegroom. So what does it mean for the bride of Christ? Ephesians 5, we're just gonna read this. I'll comment on it later. Wives, verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands. Very important word there is own. <laughs> your own husbands as to the Lord. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, I tell you, when you've counseled some people, that word own becomes important. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. You know what it actually, just separate. Oh boy, here we go. You know, submit is, is not control. It says as to the Lord. The Lord describes authority in his kingdom. Do not lord it over them like the Gentiles. <laughs> it means they, as they submit out of their heart, Voluntarily to the Lord, submit to your husband. It's not forced. It comes from love. We'll move on. Christ is, uh, for the husband is the head of the wife, also Christ the head of the church, and the Savior of the body. We are the body of Christ. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself, actually means gave himself up to the authorities to die, gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water of other word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she, she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. I would like to preach soon about marriage and we'll talk about it out of there, but I don't necessarily wanna do that now. That's just to show the marriage, Christ and the church. He is the groom, we are the bride. 
And what does it mean? I'm going to give you four simple things that we will discover or learn what it means to be the bride of Christ. And first one is freedom from the enemy. When I see that I'm the bride, genuinely by revelation, I see I'm his bride. I'm his bride. We, we will actually see in Scripture, it makes us free from the enemy, from the devil. And I'm not just talking about salvation, from his influence, from his power, from his lies. You know, Leviticus 17, 11 says this, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. People say, blood, blood of Jesus. What are you talking about blood? We're talking about the bride of Christ. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given it to you where? Upon the altar to make atonement for your soul. You know that word life, the life of the flesh? That word life is the same word as soul. The soul of a person, the soul of the flesh is in the blood. Now we can examine this at another time. It's a wonderful truth, the blood of Jesus. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins, none. You go back into ancient culture, and I mean ancient. You will see people that never heard of Jesus, never heard of just, but they are linked to the supernatural realm doing human sacrifice. And they, even the Aztecs, the Aztecs way back when, they would actually, in their, in their writings, it says, without blood, there is no removal of wickedness or something. It, they said that without knowing Scripture. There's something in this. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. There's no atonement for the soul. All civilizations, at some point or another, practiced this. But God, in His great mercy and amazing, He put animals, the blood of animals, to atone for a sin once a year. Why? Because the blood of an animal is innocent. Hello? They weren't born with natural sin. And you don't touch the image of God either in man. That's what the Bible says about murder. You don't touch the image of God, which is us. But the life of the flesh is in the blood. So, sorry, I'm thirsty. But you, it's okay, right? Thank you. So the soul of the flesh is in the blood. If you bleed out, you die. The soul of the flesh is in the blood. You know that it says in Isaiah 53, which is this great chapter of Jesus dying on the cross, the atonement that he made for sin for all mankind forever. You know what it says? He poured out his soul unto death. He poured out his blood. He poured out his soul unto death for us. So we may know that, but he says, the blood, I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your soul. In the New Testament, he gave it to us upon the cross, the blood of his son. But the life of the flesh is in the blood. You know, if you have a paternity test, if a lady, unfortunately, through just the destruction patterns of this world, has, doesn't know if these, out of these six men, which one is the Father, you do a blood test. You say, it's you, sir. Right? Yeah. The blood in Jesus' even natural body, and I'm getting distracted now by this wonderful truth. I don't fully understand this because God is spirit, but it wasn't from Mary. 
And the life of God, the life of the flesh is in the blood. The life and the power of God was in the blood of Jesus Christ. And he shed that blood. The Bible in, in 1 Peter says, talks about the precious blood of Jesus, which he poured out in the mercy seat in heaven to make atonement for all of us all the time. So uh, I wish we could talk about this, but why, what does this have to do with being the bride? You know the word atonement in Hebrew? You know what it means? It means to cover. A covering. To cover. You think of what is the first thing that Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve did when they sinned? They tried to make coverings. You know the covering that we make for sin? It's like self-righteousness. I can fix it. You know? I heard an old preacher say, and Eve made a bra, and she made these things out of leave, and as soon as she bent over there, it all came off. He said, because as soon as you apply pressure to what we think we can do, everything falls apart. You know, it's the first instinct, I must cover. Well, atonement means to cover. <laughs> the covering, what does it mean to cover? Well, you best see it in the Passover. God said, take the blood of a lamb, innocent blood. Take the blood of a lamb, put it on the doorpost. The angel of death, Passover, that's where we get. He won't look at the people. He won't look at what they're doing. He will look if there's blood, he'll pass over. Right? Blood on the, blood on the doorpost. We, we all know this, but think about this. What, did, did the angel look, okay, I see the blood, but look at what they're doing in the house. They're fighting, they're upset, they're stressed out. None of that was looked at. Their conduct, their character, no, no. Is the blood there? Passover. Because it covers over the issues of the soul. For the life of the, the soul of the flesh, the life of the flesh in the blood. Put it over there, I've given it to you upon the altar to make a covering, an atonement for the soul. A soul for a soul. So we see it a little bit in the Passover. 1 Peter 4, 8 says, and above all things have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Cover, there's that word cover. Love will cover a multitude of sins. The Greek, I think, is agape. Agape, calypto, pletho, amartia. Love will cover over a plethora of sins, what it means in the Greek, to cover. Now, the husband is the covering, yeah? Hello? In marriage, he covers, he's the covering. Well, our husband, the bride of, we're the bride, he's the groom. He provides what? A covering through his blood, which covers everything we've ever done. Because he's our husband, he said, I'll come and I'll give my blood, my sinlessness. I will live a life of righteousness. I will, because I'm the husband, I will cover. That's what it means to be the bride. Now in the Old Testament, when they covered over sin with the blood of animals, you know what? It didn't make them, it didn't clean them. 
it covered it. It's like, oh, there's still a big issue, you know, like you do in the home. There's an issue, but no one's talking about it. We all know there's tenseness, but no one mentioned it because it could explode, right? That's just, just cover over it like Adam and Eve. Just kind of cover over it, sweep it under the rug. Jesus doesn't cover you like that. He covers and cleanses and changes and makes clean. So you don't walk out of the courthouse. Yeah, you don't walk out of the courthouse. The judge lets you off, but everyone knows you did it. That is like the Old Testament. There's stuff there, but they cleansed every year by this blood of bulls and goats. Jesus said, I will come, and as a husband, I will provide a covering that gives you the safety to come into the presence of God with confidence because it's my job, I'm the husband. And I will cover you, not control you, cover you so that you can learn in safety and in freedom. Shows you what God thinks of marriage. It's as the husband that Christ is a better mediator, is our mediator of a better covenant. It's as the husband that he is our advocate. Why? Because in the high court of heaven, the accuser will come. The, the, the devil will accuse. And the blood, the Bible says, speaks. You know, blood in the supernatural realm has a voice. God said to Cain, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. It has a voice. Hebrews says, the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Because the blood of Abel speaks revenge, the blood of Jesus says redeemed. So, as the husband, mm -hmm, very thirsty, sorry. As the husband, at the high court of heaven, the accuser comes, and the husband stands and says, don't touch my wife. Don't touch my wife. Cleansed. She's clean in God's sight. Not because of what she did, because of what I did. You see the blood? You ain't the husband, devil. I am. Get out. That is what it means to be the husband. It's the husband. He not only covers, he cleanses. It's as the husband. He takes you into the presence of his father. These things, friends, become real in a person's life. When God puts in you, you're the bride. You're the bride. You're the bride. And it's as the bride that we can, and only as the bride, that we grow in actual authority. The given, the technical authority that we all have, but people like, I know we have authority, but when I sit, yeah. We gotta stop thinking like that. We've been given authority. Why do I say it's as the bride? Well, let's read it again, Ephesians 5. For we are members of his body, body of Christ, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and a mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Just as in marriage, the two become one. We are betrothed to Christ, and the two become one. We are his body. We have that authority because we're his bride, because the two have become one. And authority is realized Oh, I'm one with him. Not because of my conduct, but because of his. 
Not because of my righteousness, because of his. That will work its way out that I become practically, morally more like him. But only God can work that in intimacy. Okay, we better hurry. What else as the bride of Christ? The bride of Christ, the truth of it, makes us free from the law. It makes us free from the enemy, from his influence. But it also makes us free from the law. Oh, and how I wish we could have so much time to talk about this. But Romans 7, if you could go to Romans 7. Uh, I'm just going to read you one, a few verses. Romans 7, verse 1. Do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law. So he's speaking to those who understood the Jewish Old Testament law. That the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Why? Because the law never dies. The law is perfect and righteous and holy. And the point of the law, the Bible says, was to show people that they couldn't do it. You know that? The Bible says that. Law was given so that sin would increase. Actually says that literally word for word in the Bible. To show our need for him so that one would live up to it on our behalf and then put that righteousness upon us in marriage. That the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. This is Old Testament law. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. This is Old Testament law. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. So she is, so she is no adulteress, though she may, in a sense, now she may marry another man. Therefore, my brethren, you have become dead to the law through what? The body of Christ. Are we not the body of Christ? Through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law, it's like a child, they're not thinking of that outlet till you say, don't stick your finger in the outlet. Where is the outlet? It's aroused by the law. We're at work in our members to bear fruit unto death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. So, the law in the Bible speaks of two husbands. Isaiah 54, your husband is your maker. Speaking about Jesus, all things were made by him and through him and for him. So this husband, he's your maker. But when you're born on the earth, you're born with a sinful nature, you're born under this law. And you, you're married to it in a sense. And it's like the worst husband in the world. Why? This is how it describes our husband as the law of the husband. It's only designed to point out your faults. <laughs> and it's always right. Because it's the law. Imagine that. You know, some people will say, I'm always right. Mm, you're not. But this husband of the law is always right. And he himself never makes a mistake because he's the law. He's perfectly holy. He never makes a mistake. He is actually the measure of perfection. And you married to him. Sucks. <laughs> he also never lifts a finger to help. He can just point. But there's no empowering. Nope, wrong. I oh, know. Wrong. Okay? 
You also cannot divorce this because it's against the law. <laughs> For real, that's what he's saying. And he never dies. <laughs> so Jesus said, all right, I've got a plan. I'll come. You know, the first thing Jesus did for his bride is he left the throne. Some men need to hear that. Philippians 2 verse 5 to 9, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but became obedient unto death. So he said, the image of God in man was destroyed in the garden. You still made in my image, but it's bent and twisted. Tell you what, I'll come in the likeness and image of men to restore the image of God in man. And I'll die. And through faith in me, it'll be like you died. I've been crucified with Christ. Therefore, it's no longer I who live, but Christ liveth in me. And when you die, when you wake up, in this, when you wake up with your new nature, when you get saved, your law, the marriage to the law, is null and void legally because you identified with me. You died and woke up with a new husband. And God's justice is intact. God's integrity is intact. And you will be free. That is good news. Someone said, that's good news. It's called the gospel. You have become dead to the law. You know, any fruit, you know, the fruit of my loins, that scripture, people are like, well, that's awkward scripture. <laughs> but you know, any fruit that comes from marriage comes from intimacy. Amen. It says, when you wake up with this husband, you will bear fruit unto God, and you will serve in the newness of the Spirit. Why? Because he doesn't just cover, but everyone knows there's an issue. He covers, cleanses, and changes and you desire to serve him out of this new nature, you want to serve and you want to help and you want to do the good works that he's designed in you because he's your husband and you're in him and you bear the fruit of God and you serve. So when I am setting out coffee, when I'm looking after a kid that I don't know that's screaming in my face, when I'm, whatever I'm doing for the body, with the body, in the body, Oh, I don't do it and then I don't get thanked and now I'm mad. I do it for my husband because I love him. That's why I do it, because I'm serving in the newness of the Spirit. Hello. We're at time, but I'm not going to stop just yet. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. I'm gonna run through these two pretty quick. As the bride, it's as the bride we receive freedom from the enemy, from his influence. How I wish sometimes I could, I'm actually praying to be just real and vulnerable. God, help me to preach in such a way that people can see that sin, it's not about, don't sin, it's not about doing good and doing bad, that every time we do that, we're partnering with a destroyer and empowering him. 
It's like, but if you say that, especially to people raised in church, they just hear legalism. No, it's who's, in, who's behind it. And in the Old Testament, it was don't mix with other people. In the Old Testament, at the natural. Israel, don't mix with others. Don't intermarry. Why? Because it was pointing to the New Testament bride. Don't be mixed with the systems of the world. Be clean. <laughs> what else? Two more very quick. Freedom from this world. I am jealous for you, 2 Corinthians 11, 2. Paul speaking, I am jealous for you, speaking to the Corinthian church, with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. <laughs> True leaders and shepherds, hear me. The desire is to Show them Christ so that they remain free from the enemy, not free in the enemy. There is a difference. <laughs> free from, not free frolicking about, but there's danger all about. It's more important that you present God's bride to, her, to him versus having a successful ministry. So much more important so much more. You know, in Genesis 24, you can go read it. It's Abraham, his greatest servant. It actually, he was his friend. Abraham is his servant. He had authority over all his house, and he sends the servant to go get a bride for his son, for Isaac. And he does. Do you know through that whole story of his greatest servant, you know what? That servant is never named. We don't even know who he was because he is a representation of New Testament shepherds. Those who come to attend the bride. They are the bride, yes, individually, but by function, they are attendants to the bride. And nameless, faceless. You know, when a man gets married and his wife comes down the aisle, he is taken by her. Imagine the person, I said this to the discovery course, holding the veils and all the stuff, all the helpers, starting to jump around and do flick flacks and entertain in front of the bride. The husband's gonna be like, dude, move. Get out of the way. I wanna see her. And some leaders do that. I've been guilty of that myself in my younger times. Sometimes the people put other people on such a pedestal. The Lord is taken by his bride. So get out of the way. Lastly, freedom from this age. It's as the bride, it's as the bride that the return of the groom becomes a big deal. You know that if you look at the Last Supper, communion, when God, the Lord instituted the Last Supper, the bread and the wine, you know if you follow that, I did a teaching on this, I think, I don't know, two years ago. When you follow that process that he took in instituting the Lord's Supper, do you know that he followed step by step a Jewish betrothal ceremony? He followed 
the culture in those days of when they would be betrothed. Do you know why? Because of the way it was in the Hebrew world is when I married Jen and I said, I would have been betrothed to her. And there were all these steps they went through. He went through those with the communion. He was saying, I'm becoming betrothed through this process. This is my betrothal ceremony. And then the husband would leave for about a year and he would go and build a house and get ready. See, I have a Jewish lady over there shaking her head. Yep, she's like, yes, that's true. And then he would come back and get her. And you know the only person who would say, who was allowed to say when it was the right time? The father of the groom. So they were married, but they weren't. They were betrothed, and he would leave, and he would turn and say to her, remember me, please. I'm going to go, and I'm going to work hard for you. I'm going to build a house. Please remember me. Jesus said, when I come back, will there be faith on the earth? Will they remember? Do this often in remembrance of me. They understood. For I am going, and where I am going, I will build you a house. In my Father's room, I'm going to build you a home. I'm going to make a home for you. Then I'm going to come back, and I'm going to take you to be where I am, to be with me. It's exactly John 14. It was a betrothal ceremony, and our husband is coming back because he's been preparing a home. And who gets to say? Jesus said, only the father knows the day. The groom's father. Yahweh, Jehovah. He knows. And he will come back. The last chapter of the Bible, the spirit and the bride. The spirit and the bride say, come. Read this to you. Revelations 19. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. You know, sometimes the Bible is pretty clear. It's like a bedtime story. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again, they said, hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God and all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters, as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. That means all power. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright for the fine linen as the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, right, blessed are all those who come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that day is coming. Because why? We are his bride and he is our groom. It's not so much about coming back to destroy the enemy, but about coming back to get his bride 
so he will destroy the enemy because it's his bride. You know, people say, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. Go say that to a normal man. I love you, but I hate your wife. (laughs) It's not going to go so well. It ain't going to go well. I'm going to read you a parable quick. I know it's over time. So if you're tired, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes because I'm going to. So if you fall asleep, that's great. (laughs) I wrote a parable about this, and then we'll be done. Um, If you could close your eyes for a moment and just try to imagine this in your heart. I'm just going to read it to you. It's not long. Think of a king, Old Testament, old old school, like old-fashioned kingdoms. And think of a king who goes to battle for the one bride who has his heart. So there is a king who looks in his kingdom for a bride, but there is none to be seen. And in his search, he discovers that the one foretold to be the love of his life was a child of royal birth from a neighboring kingdom. But she was stolen from this kingdom when she was a baby. So he leaves his throne to seek her out and to win her heart. When he finds her, he pays the ransom demanded for her freedom. Because he loves her, he desires to remind her, because he loves her, he desires to remind her who she actually is in such a way that she can be free from thinking she was who her captors had convinced her she was. But that's all she's ever known. He doesn't do this because she is not good enough for him but because it's who she was born to be, because she is actually of royal birth, even though she never knew it. She was raised by the enemy who stole her. His thinking, his methods, his style of ruling. And secretly, his long-term strategy was to convince her of terrible lies about herself and about her heritage, so that even if one day she were rescued, she may never be comfortable with ruling And so thereby, he removed the threat whether she was rescued or not. She had never exercised authority that she was born into. She was not aware of the potential trapped inside of her. So how does the king remind her? Very simple. He speaks to her all the time. He spends time with her. But even when when he does, she snaps back at him. She lashes out at him, accuses him of lying to her, tricking her because she's never known what it is to trust anyone before. But he knows this, and he is patient because he loves her. And he knows the day will come when she will believe him and learn to live in the royal ways of her new kingdom, not the slave ways of her old one. So he pursues her heart continually, and that bride is you. Or they are stewards of this king, I'm talking now about leaders sometimes. And they have, with a good heart, but with less understanding, they demand the change in the bride before she knows she is loved and rescued and safe. Before she understands that what she was given by birth is hers and cannot be taken away. They tell her what the king expects of her instead of how he feels about her. So this broken shell of a bride 
uses all her might to become what she thinks is expected of her at the cost of her joy, her beauty, and her health. So even when she tries to use the authority she is told that she has, no one listens. They despise her, and they know she doesn't really know what to do. She doesn't really know if the king will even back up her edicts, because at times he cannot, because they are made with a mind that that still thinks like a slave. Friends, the bride is you, and he loves you more than you can ever imagine. We are his bride, and he is coming back for the bride, and it's in that that we discover authority. We become free from the enemy's influence, free from the law, free from this world, and even free from this age when he comes back, because we're his bride. Amen? Amen. Bless you. Over to you, Tommy.